On the evening of May 25th, George Floyd Jr. walked into a shop in Minneapolis and tried to use a $20 note. Within half an hour, his limp body was loaded into an ambulance. What happened in between has been viewed across social media platforms and news channels around the world millions of times. You're listening to Beyond the Headlines. I'm Archer Hill, and this week we're looking at how phone cameras and social media have affected racial progress in the U.S. and globally. Police were called to the area when employees at a shop suspected the $20 note Floyd used to buy cigarettes was counterfeit. As police tried to arrest George Floyd, three officers pinned him to the ground, as one stood nearby and watched. One of them, Derek Chauvin, knelt down on his neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. Towards the end of this time, there was a crowd forming around the officers, shouting to release him and to check his pulse. They watched George Floyd go from repeatedly telling the officers he couldn't breathe, to calling for his deceased mother, to his final silence. (laughs) 17-year-old Darnella Frazier filmed the incident on her smartphone, a video that has since been circulated globally and showed the world yet another case of police brutality against a black man in the United States. The first time a video of police brutality had a similar impact was 29 years earlier, in 1991. So I remember seeing, um, growing up, Rodney King being beaten on the uh, L.A. freeway. And so he became the poster child uh, at that time of, you know, police police brutality. Because if uh, you recall, Rodney King uh, was pulled over and then, you know, subsequently after the beating by police officers, he went on TV with a very swollen and mangled face. And so in my lifetime, that was my first case of actually seeing police brutality. That was Professor Nicole Turner-Lee, Senior Fellow at the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. Rodney King's beating at the hands of the LAPD was the first time such an incident had been captured on video and disseminated across the U.S. and beyond. When the four police officers responsible for the beating were acquitted, the city of Los Angeles erupted into riots that lasted for five days. Since the rise of camera phones and social media algorithms, connecting people instantly, visually across the world, the incidents of racism and brutality seem to have increased. Or at least the recorded proof of them has. Here's Nicole Turner-Lee. Well, they were always common, but they were not always known. So I would I would suggest to anybody who thinks that the cases of police brutality in the last um, few years has really increased, I would suggest that that's not the case. There's always been violence waged against uh, communities of color. Um, there were other things that I saw in museums and on movies growing up, like Emmett Till after his casket was opened by his mother, and we were able to see the um, results of white lynch mobs in the South. But Rodney King, in an urban context, was the earliest um, that I saw. And then I think later, um, which I actually, because of smartphones coming out uh, really 11 years ago, we 
we missed a little bit of the capturing of the recording of Oscar Grant in uh, Oakland, California. There were mobile phones available at that time to film not just the police um, assaulting him, but the actual shooting of him on the BART train system. But I would suggest I actually didn't know about that incident uh, the way that um, I saw it portrayed uh, later in the movie Fruitvale Station when Oscar Grant's story was profiled in, in, on film. So we've had cases where brutality has existed, uh, but we really haven't seen cases very much you know, in the public eye where we could witness it in such dramatic ways as we have as technology has evolved. The history of violence against Black people in the U.S. is rooted in slavery and white supremacy. Perceived to be inhuman, Black Africans were brought over in the Atlantic slave trade against their will and kept as property. Even when American slavery was abolished in 1865, Black Americans remained second-class citizens through political and economic disenfranchisement. The principles of free labor were enforced within a racist prison system, which sought to replace Black slaves with Black inmates. After the Civil War, slave owners in the South struggled to find a system to replace their free labor, and prison was seen as a viable alternative. This even led to a Louisiana slave plantation being turned into a prison to avoid any disruption of service. Segregation kept the black population both separated from their white counterparts, but also denied them access to many parts of society. The legacy of all this can be seen today. The Pew Research Center analysis of data from the Federal Reserve Board's Survey of Consumer Finances of 2016 showed that the net worth of a typical white family was $171,000 per annum, nearly 10 times greater than that of a black family at $17,150. But here in the U.S., there has always been a conversation around the exploitation um, and structural inequalities waged against people of color. But I don't think for mainstream populations that they understood the extent to which that depravity actually existed. And I think due to the evolution of mobile technologies in ways that not only allow you to record it, but to share it, and then to build movements around these types of um, data that are available via the technologies, has just been a substitution of what we've seen in traditional civil rights organizing, which is the use of telephones to actually get people out to the street. Back in the civil rights movement, uh, there were, in the 60s, there were particular news channels and broadcast stations across the country that did not want to televise the uh, protests that were happening during the civil rights movement when mayors and governors were unleashing dogs and, uh, you know, opening water valves to hose down protesters as African-American men and women walked around with signs you know, basically the same like we're seeing today, which is, I am a man, give me my freedom. And there was an, a, a hesitation and an outright rebellion by certain white broadcasters to not have that uh, sent into the living rooms of American families. But there was a gentleman from the United Church of Christ, uh, Everett C. Parker, who fought one of these stations in the state of Mississippi to broadcast these atrocities that were happening during the civil rights movement. And I would just suggest as a result of uh, that 
people got to see just how atrocious and just how demeaning uh, racial inequities were. And so I think the same thing is happening here in the United States where we're seeing these cell phones replace a lot of the old organizing techniques. In 2009, Oscar Grant, a Black 22-year-old, was shot and killed by transport police on New Year's Day. The police officer who shot Grant claimed that he had meant to tase him. Multiple videos from people at Fruitville Station were taken that day, showing the officer looked down at his gun before shooting. Since then, the number of videos taken on camera phone of racist incidents and police brutality have become increasingly common. I think that had a lot to do with the rise of social media. So you have to remember back in those days, we had uh, very limited access to these tools, or at least the general public did. Those social media platforms were really not readily available to the public to serve as the new uh, commons when it came to announcing such atrocities. We had like email and we had, you know, a more static internet at the time. And I mean, at the time, smartphones and uh, car phones were really the luxury of the elite, right? They, they, they were the ones that primarily had the power of mobile in, in their possession. But I think we would see after Oscar Grant, you know, some change in that. We think about it, Trayvon Martin in 2012 was like the next largest case of police brutality. I think that shaped the world because what the imagery people were left with was that he was wearing a hoodie and carrying Skittles, if you recall. We saw the images of his face, this young teenager wearing a hoodie, walking through his mother's neighborhood, carrying Skittles. And if you recall, that's the images uh, that people took on. Many more people started wearing hoodies, you know, talking about don't shoot me. Uh, Congressman Bobby Rush came onto the legislative floor with a hoodie. But we hadn't seen Trayvon get shot, right? It would be after Trayvon where we started seeing people carrying these smartphone devices, seeing this power of recording, and just picking up as street journalists. The public domain wasn't actually witnessing what was happening until these social media platforms started taking off. In 2013, after George Zimmerman was acquitted for the shooting and killing of 17-year-old Trayvon Martin, the hashtag Black Lives Matter went viral on social media. It grew to become a large-scale activist organization working against white supremacy and violent racism and remains the rallying cry at every protest march and many social media posts regarding police brutality and violence against Black people. But it hasn't just been cases of violence that are being recorded and shared. Everyday examples of so-called casual racism have also started to proliferate in this new era of social media. The hashtags while black and living while black started on Twitter in 2009 and 2010, but quickly gained popularity as people shared videos of everyday racial aggressions. In 2014, the U.S. magazine Mother Jones started compiling a list of things that were not safe to do whilst being black. The list of activities makes for an uninteresting read. Shopping, waiting for a school bus, walking moving into a new apartment, and going to the gym. A number of these instances have been caught on camera and shared on social media, a resource that was not available to previous generations. Nicole Turner-Lee talks about the role of social media in this process. 
these platforms became much more diffused and they started being purpose for uh, things that they were not necessarily designed to do. You know, Facebook was supposed to be social and then it became pro-social. You see what I mean? Which I think was a, a changing in this business model when it first was introduced to the public. I think what's happening now is sort of this um, substantiation or uh, verification that inequality does exist. And I think where I equate that technology is bringing life to pain. And the fact that we had seen technology used in other ways, if you recall, to sort of show us how different people had lived experiences, whether it was in poverty. I mean, tech was not necessarily used for police shootings, but it was being repurposed for exposing sex trafficking, right? And exposing missing and exploited children. And here we began to see technology used in ways that I think really culminated with the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, which was a hashtag movement, where people began to see that you could use these platforms in collective mobilization. The increase in use of smartphones has definitely played a role. In 2011, 35% of Americans owned smartphones. In 2020, that number has gone up to 81%. This increase in exposure to racist crimes isn't just inside the U.S. These videos have gone viral on borderless global platforms. Five billion people in the world own mobile devices. Half of these are smartphones. The protests against the killing of George Floyd have spread across the world. And artwork portraying either George Floyd or the words, I can't breathe, have sprung up in a multitude of locations. Paris, London, Berlin, Auckland, Tel Aviv, Sydney, and more. George Floyd, albeit the spark that started these protests, is not what has kept them burning. Underlying and often long-standing racial tensions unique to these places has provided fuel. In Paris, protesters gathered for Adama Traore, a Malayan man who died in police custody in 2016. In Australia, those gathering not only cited Floyd, but also the systemic racism of minorities and natives. In London, activist Gladys Aloba spoke about why she went to the protests. Most people saw it in the news that um, George had been murdered by the police and we were all absolutely horrified by the way in which he was murdered. I mean, we're in 2020 now. It's just absolutely disgusting to think in the year 2020, we still have institutionalized racism within the US and UK police forces. My question is, is why is there not been more protesting regarding the life of Rashawn Charles, who was one of our own who was murdered by the police, who still now hasn't got any justice? And to wear a uniform as a police officer that you swear to serve and protect your country and the people in your country, and then to turn around on the other hand and kill somebody, even because of their colour, is absolutely disgusting, to be honest. As we get further away from the day George Floyd died, social media has taken many turns. We've had the hashtag 
Blackout Tuesday, where people around the world, in a show of solidarity for George Floyd, posted black squares on various platforms. The usual posts of lively photos, personal anecdotes, and raging opinions were replaced by an abundance of plain black squares. A moment of silence for the lives lost and the struggles that remained. One of the overriding hashtags since the protests began has been defund the police. This has been read by some to mean that the police should be completely abolished. Nicole says that it's more about starting afresh. The policing processes and department is interesting because, you know, the fact that people want to disband an entire police department and start all over again is, in my opinion, one of the ways that you begin to tackle racism. You will only put Band-Aids on scars if you don't tackle what actually is the root cause of the cut or the scrape. And that's how we have typically handled racism. And so how you tackle racism is really making structural changes. And that's what we're seeing in some police departments where people are basically, I think, suggesting that we just get rid of everybody and we start all over again, maybe make people reapply, come in with some new norms, make it more close to the community, et cetera. On the 8th of June, just two weeks after the death of George Floyd, eight members of Minneapolis City Council vowed to disband the police. Although there have been no details released on what this means, it would not be the first city to do so. In 2012, the city of Camden, New Jersey, in the United States, disbanded its police force after corruption became endemic, requiring police to go through a rehiring process. Here is Madaria Aradondo, chief of the Minneapolis Police Department. As chief, I am immediately withdrawing from the contract negotiations with the Minneapolis Police Federation. I plan to bring in subject matter experience and advisors to conduct a thorough review of how the contract can be restructured to provide greater community transparency and more flexibility for true reform. So, what other changes does Nicole see happening due to the protests? I think it's very difficult to dismantle decades of systemic oppression um, in a march. And I think the only thing that you can do is shift the behavioral attitudes that people are currently experiencing around racism. Like what we're seeing, for example, with corporations giving millions of dollars to racial equity causes. Some of these corporations don't have African-Americans or Latinas in high offices of decision-making nor on their board. But we have a sickness, and that sickness was started by white supremacy. And white supremacy, which is at the heart of racism, is what makes racism so hard to unpack. Because it's not just the uh, structural inequalities as to you know, who has better income, or wealth, or jobs, or employment, but it's the nature of what the narrative or the social construction of race as to the privileges associated to the color of your skin that make it a possible for someone who may be of, of a less higher status or social class uh, to feel more worthy than an African-American who has a medical degree. And so I don't know how you cure cancer without a viable treatment that addresses the root cause of the illness. Despite the many protests, 
riots, marches, and other concerted efforts to end racism in America. Pessimism on the efficacy of protests to bring about substantial change is understandable. But public opinion is shifting. After the officers were acquitted in the Rodney King trial, 79% of the U.S. population said that preceding unrest and riots were unjustified, even though most Americans thought the verdict was wrong. Now, 78% of America's population think the unrest following George Floyd's death has been either fully or partially justified. As videos of injustice continue to be recorded, live-streamed, and tweeted, they become part of a broader image of American society. An image that was previously as well manicured as that perfect green lawn behind the white picket fence of the American dream. So, what's next? Nicole Turner Lee says the full potential of these videos needs to be utilized. So, I think that, that we need to continue to collect that, and onlookers should not have fear of the collection of that. They don't always lead to a conviction, but they do lead to a conviction in the public square. So, if we can get you know, if no officer is ever arrested because of the brokenness of these systems, but we've raised the awareness that these incidents keep happening, then in the court of public opinion, we've done a lot. And so I think what it does is it gives Black people another lens that makes their experiences much more real and objectively um, available to the general public. As long as these videos are there, They will continue to help people visualize our experiences. But as long as they're just videos and they remain as live recordings, they will never truly administer the full carriage of justice. So then how do you allow and make these kinds of videos permissible in the court of law? And what should we be doing to ensure not just that, uh, The videos of onlookers are available, but the police videos are also available to the public. And that's something, you know, that has constantly been delayed when we move towards body cams. Body cams were designed to help us just as what onlookers are doing, but yet they often are not released um, until weeks or months after a person has been affected or criminalized. It would be naive to think that the current protests and the social media movement will be a silver bullet to the issues of race that have pervaded American and world societies throughout all of human history. But maybe this is just the beginning. Perhaps the ephemeral, often superficial medium of social media, in allowing people to chronicle and share widely the injustices in this moment, will be a catalyst for long-term change moving forward. You fought a good fight. You kept the faith. You finished your course. Go on and get your rest now. Go on and see mama now. We gonna fight on. We gonna fight on. We gonna fight on. We gonna fight on. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Headlines. I've been your host, Archer Hill. If you've enjoyed the episode, please do subscribe by clicking the subscribe button in your favorite podcasting app. And if you have time, you can leave a review. This week's episode was produced by Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan, with additional assistance from Rachel Graham and Joyce Karam.